Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Ozpan, here with my friend in Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Eruvin, daf Yud Gimel, 13. So many of you know I've been waiting to get to this daf, and it was one of these dafs where I said to Ann, we really could just read the whole daf, but unfortunately, we don't have time for that. Um, so we're going to talk about a few things that are on this staff. The first is uh, sort of integrating a who's who on Rabbi Mayer. Um, so we have a lot of biographical information about Rabbi Mayer here. Uh, this is the same Rabbi Mayer Balhanes that some of you may be uh, familiar with, that some people, you know, give tzedakah and sort of dive in, in his zuchut if you have uh, a lost object that you're trying to find. Um, and so a couple things about Rabbi Mayer that's not on this page that I just want to fill in is that he was married to Beria. Um, also, he had a very with Alicia Benabuya, um, who later really, you know, sort of lost faith and is sometimes referred to in the Gemara as Acher. Um, but there are some stories, which we will get to eventually, um, that really describe how he sort of maintained a particular type of relationship with him and was still even willing to learn with him, um, even after, um, you know, Alicia Benabuya, um, uh, you know, you know, sort of left, uh, did not believe anymore. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is, sorry, that I should have mentioned is that Buria is the daughter of Rabbi Hanania uh, ben Tadron, uh, who's one of the, uh, who's one, thank you, one Tadron, who's one of the 10 martyrs. Um, so, you know, just to know sort of how like all these relationships um, are interconnected um, with each other. Um, uh, but uh, to me, the two things that really struck me about Rabbi Mayer in terms of his um, personality here that the DAP talks about was the first was this idea, you know, they were trying to figure out who really was his teacher, right? Like, who did he really learn under? Was it Rabbi Yishmael or was it Rabbi Akiva? And when the DAP discusses that, you know, it was he learned initially with Rabbi Akiva, could not understand well or sort of grasp well Rabbi Akiva's Torah, went back to Rabbi Yishmael um, and then, sorry, goes to Rabbi Yishmael and then goes back to Rabbi Akiva. Um, and I think we have to put this also in a larger context, which is that in terms of how we uh, understand or how we're allowed to interpret Sukim in the Torah, Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Akiva really had two very different schools of thought. So Rabbi Yishmael is very famous for having this, you know, these principles of the Yud Gimel Midot. Um, you can find them in the beginning of any sitter. Some people say them in the morning when they dive in shachars. Um, But his principle was basically that the Torah is written in the language of man. Whereas Rabbi Akiva um, had more of this, uh, his way of understanding Psukim when it came to uh, darshaning out a Pasuk is that any little thing that you could find in the Pasuk, right? Even, you know, just the way a letter was written in the Torah could be subject to interpretation. So it's not simply just when it says that he learned or sort of vacillated between the, you know, Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Akiva. It's important to recognize also that Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Akiva had two very different views and two very, very different methodologies. And I actually think this teaches us something beautiful, which will connect even more so to what we're going to discuss with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, um, which is really giving us sort of a philosophy of how to be a learner in this world. That Rabbi Mayer, I think his special trait, and this is also true with his relationship with Alicia Benabuya, is that he was able to learn from everybody. And that even if somebody, you know, to have two teachers who sort of had opposite methodological approaches, but the fact that he could learn from both of them and incorporate both of them really teaches us something about Rabbi Mayer. And I think telling us 
something that we should strive to be as students. And then the second piece of that is, is that, you know, where the, uh, on your Gimel where it comments, it's sort of his level of explanation was so high that often the Chachamim couldn't really understand what he was saying. Um, you know, so I, I understood that a little differently. Oh, how I, did you understand that? I actually understood that sometimes it was so simple that they didn't understand what he was saying. Right. Okay. It, that that he gave the psak, right? And that doesn't mean he built it up. He like just understood it and he was able to get there. Right. And and that mean that means that like that sometimes it was above them, right? It was over their heads because they couldn't follow the steps. But it's like you um yeah, I can give you an example. I once upon a time had a Chavruta who read the Gemara like he was reading English. This was years and years ago. He read the Gemara like he was reading English and he had majored in English, right? And I kept thinking like, maybe we should like learn something that he hadn't learned before because he was so fluid with the daf. And he said, no, he had never learned that daf before. And it was so like such an overwhelming kind of oh difference of level, let's put it that way, as compared to where I was at that time and to where this guy was at that time. And it was, and it was very impressive, right? But it's, it's not, you know, he didn't think anything of it. I don't think Rebbe Mayer thought like he, I think he was just doing his learning, doing his teaching, paskening his halachas, right? But he was a rock star because he was so sharp and so bright and was able to assimilate so much information. And then my understanding here is that he provided, you know, the simple conclusion, which sometimes wasn't the psak because people couldn't figure out where he got it from. Right. I mean, that's I, I the Right, that's the language, right? Right, why isn't the halacha always like him if he was so brilliant? And even more so if he sort of was able to combine the best of Rabbi Yishmael and the best of Rabbi Akiva, right? Right, so I think that line is like the key there. You know, that, what does that mean? That they sort of couldn't, um, uh, you know. rationale. Right, they couldn't always understand the rationale. But then what I think is interesting is then afterwards, you have Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi coming, right? Who is always considered to be the Talmud Chacham of Talmud Chachams, right? He's compared to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? And then, you know, he basically says, you know, um, I'm a Rabbi, um, right? I'm more incisive than my colleagues because I saw Rabbi Meir from behind, meaning he sat and he really learned under Rabbi Meir. So I think it's important that on the one hand, the daf here is telling us, we don't always follow the halacha like Rabbi Meir, even though he was such a Talmud Chacham. But yet the person who establishes uh, the uh, Mishnah, you know, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, comes on this page to say like, yes, but I am who I am, right? Remember, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is compared to Moshe, right? I am who I am because I learned under Rabbi Meir. And it would have been even better if I stood, if I sat in front of him. And I think it also speaks to the fact that Stam Mishnah, and the Gemara says that here on our Duff too, Stam Mishnah, Karebi Meir. We assume, we understand that if the Mishnah has no uh, name attributed to it, then it is, you know, linked to Rebbe Meir, just about always, right? And at least as a general principle. So so if Rebbe Yehuda Nasi was in this kind of awe and gleaning from the teachings and the learnings of Rebbe Meir, it makes all the more sense that this would be the backbone of the Mishnah, even to the extent that he didn't have to name him. Um, but again, this is also the Torah of Rabbi Akiva, right? For all that Rabbi, that for all that Rabbi Meir learned under both Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael, when it comes to actual psak and the Mishnah, 
right? I think that for the most part, we understand Rabbi Meir following the train of thought of Rabbi Akiva more so than Rabbi Ishmael. Yes, uh, that's for sure clear on this stuff. And one other thing I wanted to mention, which I forgot to, is that he's a fourth generation Tana. I should have said that from the beginning and I forgot to mention that just okay. to sort of place him. So the other piece that I really found just, you know, again, impressive and and part of who he is, um, is, and it speaks also to the Alicia Benavuya part, he, right, it says on the Gemara, that, in the Dafir, that he was able to make the case for, let's say, for Mutter and also for what's prohibited, what's permitted, right, in both directions, fully. You could be fully convinced in one direction, and then he could argue it for you the other way, and you'd be fully convinced in the other direction. So on the one hand, that's, you know, genius, right, to be able to always see both sides fully and argue them legitimately, right, as opposed to making the stronger case where one clearly wins, right? It seems that neither was going to win because he was going to do such a good job of making the case in both directions. And it also means that he was, that part of his genius, at least, was to see, you know, the the multifaceted sides of everything to be able to understand that you have, you know, quote, two sides to every issue, in this case, presumably more, but, right, the idea that his, his genius was... Um, indiscriminatory right it's not that he was going with bias it's not that he all i'm sure he had if we traced all of his psaki i'm sure we'd see trends in terms of what he says but in terms of his own um intellectual capabilities he was able to make that case in both directions and so then when we see that he was able to maintain a relationship with alicia benavuya and take only the good from that relationship and not be troubled or maybe troubled but not be um thrown off by the fact that alicia benavuya was no longer a believer Right. That also speaks again to like who he was as a person and not just who he was as an intellect. Um, I think that there's a great deal of if you if our listeners, hello, if you have not if you have not read through this daf, um, I encourage you to just find the section that's talking about Rebbe Mayer, not the halachic discussion in his name on this page, which is kind of going through all these comments about how how great he was and this and that. But these comments about how great he was, which we're not reading inside um because because again in the interest of time i think that some of it is very beautiful and worth actually reading inside and the one other comment that i wanted to make is um very often people i have heard said right the rebbe mayor is really nahurai right and the gemara here explains that his name was not rebbe mayor Meir, right means to give light to make light um and instead it was nahurai which is kind of the aramaic version of mayor Right. And but he was called Rabbi Mayer because of his because of his gifts. But really, really, his name was Nohorai. And there's somebody in the Gemara who's called Rav Nohorai. And that isn't Rabbi Mayer. That that person's name was also something like Nehemiah, whatever. I may have lost it. I, and when I checked it before, I thought it was Nehemiah. Um, and he was called Nohorai also in recognition of his incisiveness, which, of course, is confusing because now we've got two Nohorais. We're both getting a claim in a in a nickname kind of way. But the point here being so two points. One is a how Ruby Mayer was known that he had his special name that everybody knew, you know, that, as I said before, the rock star, right? Like he was the um, the gone, the genius in the Beit Midrash. Right. And secondly, the fact that they did flip around these names. Right. That there was a phenomenon of giving. We've, we've talked about this before, even back in Masach Brachot how sometimes names are not the names that you think that they are, um, where there's some kind of, uh, either it's a pun or it's a descriptor, or there were two people with the same name, so they went with a different one, you know, that kind of thing. 
Um, and so the Gemara, and it makes it much more complicated for us learning to parse out who everybody is, but I, we understand also why that might have come into play. So uh, thank you. I think all those are really good points, um, but we're going to move on now to uh, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Um, so the Gemara here brings down the following uh, information about Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. I'm a Rabbi Abba Amr so there were three years uh, that there was machlokas uh, between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Right? One said the halacha is like us. The other said the halacha is like us. Um, so a bat hole came out. And again, we've talked about the purpose of a bat hole, which is usually uh, to inform humans of something that would not necessarily be understood by, just by regular human observation or intellect, um, and came out and said, both of these are So it's always interesting to me because people always quote this first half of the Batol, right, as a point of saying, like, we can exist with multiple opinions, right? Multiple opinions uh, can be present in the same space in the same time because the idea is, is both of these are, you know, both of these are the living, uh, are the living words of God. However, what's the second half? But still, at the end of the day, we have to be practical. And what? We have to paskin like somebody. And who's the halacha going to be like? It's going to be like Beit Hillel. So that's one thing I wanted to point out is that I just often think we don't quote the second half of this statement. So then the Gemara wants to go and explain why is that the case? So they ask the obvious question, which is, okay, wait, on the one end, you're saying Right, But then you're saying that the halacha is always going to be like Beit Hillel. How can that be? These two statements seem to be contradictory. So the reason is, is that they, right, were a little bit, they were like more agreeable, right? They weren't so strong with how they taught their halacha, right? And they were even willing to teach the words of uh, Beit Shammai. But not only that, when they would teach, they would always teach the halacha of Beit Shammai before they taught Beit Hillel. And then how do they prove this? Because they quote a Mishnah that has to do with Sukkah, where we actually see that, where there's a discussion back and forth. And it, it seems from that discussion that Beit Hillel actually taught the words of Beit Shammai uh, before their own halacha. So I always have loved this Gemara. I think it really teaches us uh, some very valuable lessons about machlokas, right? And the idea that, and I know we've done, um, I think we've talked about before, you know, machlokas really, when we get to Chagiga, we'll really talk about it more where it's going to discuss what was really the first machlokas in Torah Sheba Al-Peh. Um, and, but the idea is that really, you know, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, and we don't see machlokas, excuse me, until we get to the five pairs and they're the last of the five pairs of the Zugot. Um, but it really was their students, the Beit, Hill, the Beit Shammai and the Beit Hillel who uh, Gemara and Yerushalmi that really brought about lots of different machlokas. Um, and I think really the point of this Gemara is to say, look, all opinions are valid, right? They're, they are, right? Obviously, if we're doing it, and, and, you know, that's what it's trying to say here. But on the other hand, there's a way to be respectful within your machlokas. And that is the way of Beit Hillel. And that's why the halacha is like Beit Hillel. And it's interesting to me that it's not necessarily about the Beit Hillel's reasoning was better or, you know, somehow uh, Beit Hillel's opinion was more superior. It's not even about the halachic argument or the halachic opinion, but it was more about how they conducted themselves 
in the space of Machlokas and that they were always willing to be a little bit more open to the other side and to teach that side um, and to just sort of not be, you know, as entrenched into what their halacha was. So I think there's a lot of value, um, many important lessons here on this page that we can learn from Rabbi Mayer and also from the actions of Beit Hillel. So I just want to I just want to say that the the case that you just mentioned, right, is here as well of where Beit Hillel would quote Beit Shammai first. That is that they went to visit the house of Rabbi Yochanan ben Achoranit, and there's a whole question of where he's sitting. Is he going to be yotzei the, the mitzvah of sukkah or not? Because his head and most of you know his head is most of his body is in the sukkah, but the tables in the house and like we. We understand that there's a halachic issue here, and Beit Shammai Beit Hillel, at the end of the day, they really do agree. But the point here is that Beit Hillel, you know, first spoke about the opinion of Beit Shammai, and then the Gemara says, takes this point and kind of says everything here, David, that you just said. Everybody who humbles himself, anyone who humbles himself, um, God will exalt him, God will raise him up. And everybody who exalts himself, then God will humble him. Anybody who, who goes after, who seeks greatness, greatness will flee from him. And anybody who runs away from greatness, and the greatness will chase that person. And I think that this also is a very important, uh, you know, very heavy hitting lesson in humility. I'm not sure that somebody can become this person simply by reading this Gemara, but it certainly is a statement of values. Right, so anybody who tries to force the moment, right, you try to get something to happen at exactly that time when you want it because you want it, you know, then you're going to end up in trouble from the, what the time or what that moment is going to do for you. And vice versa, vice versa um, somebody who is patient and you know, let the moment work for them. Then time will till time will be on his side. And then lastly, I, yeah, sorry. Wait, can I just? I I love this last part. That to me is like such a hard thing to do. Like it, it's basically teaching you, like in a way, we have to go with the flow. I mean, I think again, you know, this to me is like really speaks to me in these times with COVID of just sort of being like, if you if you force yourself or you try to force something and it's not the right time, it's not gonna happen. And if you can just sort of give yourself over to the present, it, it, it will happen. And I don't know if it means that what you want is gonna work out for you, like as you want it, or is it that if you can sort of live in the moment, you will just feel more um, satisfaction and happiness because you're not just thinking about what you wanted it to be. I also understood it to mean like, don't push, right? Don't push the envelope. Don't push, like, it doesn't say don't, right? It says that if you do that, it's not necessarily the way to get things done, which I thought was also an interesting, again, we can interpret this in many different directions. I, I guess we just have. Um, <laughs> but but the, but the statement gives that room, meaning it's, it's exactly that kind of very rich, very rich, very nuanced, very instructive kind of statement. And then lastly, and of course, I, we're going to close with this. Um, it's going to leave us with much um, food for thought. Tanur Rabbanan is a very, very famous Gemara. It appears elsewhere, I believe as well, but not, I don't have where off the top of my head. Tanur Rabbanan, for two and a half years, Beit Shammai Beit disagreed about the following. 
הללו אומרים, נוח לא לאדם שלא נברא, יותר משנברא. והללו אומרים, נוח לא לאדם שנברא, יותר משלא נברא. They debated, and they're not, it does not tell us who said which, which is interesting here, I find. I think intentional. Um, the question of better that man had never been created than that he was created, or better indeed that man was created in fact, and, um, than that he had not been created, right? Should, it's a, it's a comment on, okay, humanity is here, but, but is it a good thing that God created man? Um, and then finally, Nimnu Vagamru. So they finally, they, they count and they conclude, right? And the question, that expression itself is a little tricky. Like, were they trying to, Nimnu, were they counting? What were they counting? And possibly they were counting about mitzvot, right? The idea that you can, once you can do mitzvot, then that's a good thing. Noach lo le'adam sholo nivra, yoter mishinivra. The conclusion is, better that man had not been created. Better that we were not here. Achshav shinivra. But once we are here, yifashpesh b'ma'asav, you should investigate your deeds. Va'amruli yimashmesh b'ma'asav. You should scrutinize your deeds, right? You should examine them, you should scrutinize them, figure out what you're going to be doing to make sure that you're not falling into sin. Meaning, it may well be better that man not have been created. We could argue for, you know, for two and a half years about why that might be the case. But at the end of the day, we're here. So now we just have to make sure that we make the best make of it. The best of it. This is good Elul Torah. I'm just going to almost really stand by itself. There's not much to say. <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a very poignant Gemara. Like, I think it really, you know, it acknowledges like we humans kind of screw up our existence and you know so would it have been better like look at some of the problems that we're facing in the world right now but then i think at the end he's trying to give us a pep talk which is like look but at the end of the day we're here so what are you going to make of it make right? it something good right there's this great there's this great midrash that says the midot the angels of the world were debating before god created man right whether god should do so and they're making the, the argument that you know people you know he's, he's he's all falsehood he just lies right and, you know, he is always argument, arg- argumentative, whatever. There's no peace in humanity. And then the argument that says, no, but he does acts of chesed and he does acts of tzedek and that we build ourselves up through our actions is also a really valuable thing. Yeah, it's true. We as people are frail and we are flawed and we can't get past that. But we can still, as I said before, we can make the best of our time here and do good things with our time. Well, so wishing everyone, I guess this is uh, the start of a new week, Shavua Tov, and wishing us all a week where we do good things and find this purpose in our life. That's our dot for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, let us know what you thought about this stuff. There's just so much good content here and things to think about. And how will you carry this through your week and through Elul and maybe even through the Amim Noreim and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.